Well, hey, and welcome to episode 36 of the Gospel for Everyone podcast. I'm your host, Brendan Krismer, and we're so glad you're here. Well, on today's episode, Jason and I sit down and we discuss Romans chapter 12, verses 17 through 21, which we weren't able to get to on Sunday. And we talk about how to practically hate what is evil, and we discuss uh, the idea of conviction versus shame. As always, if you've not yet listened to the message from Sunday, I do encourage you to pause this episode here, go back and listen to the message before continuing on as it's going to help this conversation make much more sense to you. Well, without further ado, we hope you enjoy this episode. Well, hey, good morning. Well, happy Monday, Brendan. It's just you and me today. It is, and it's weird because we're both sitting on the same side of the room because usually <laughs> Josh sits on the other side, so this it's, feels a little uncomfortable. It's going to be awkward, we're, but we're gonna, all right. We're going to power through. Um, we pressed record here because Jason just mentioned a news uh, article he read or saw, maybe saw uh, sometime this morning, and I thought it was worthwhile conversation for the podcast. So uh, what, what was that that you were talking about? So there's this new... I don't know how new it is, but it's becoming fairly popular where men are choosing to get their legs lengthened. So they go into surgery, they actually have their legs broken, and they stick a rod in your leg, and they'll crank that thing up over several months to add height to your body. So a guy who is 5'7 can make himself 5'10. And and it's a thing now because no woman wants to be with a guy who's less than six feet, right? That's the thing. You got to be at least six feet and have six figures. So he, he said this a minute ago and I didn't really believe it. So then I Googled <laughs> it and I, I mean, immediately seven eight nine articles <laughs> pop up that were all about men's the men's trend of leg lengthening so that got me to thinking i wonder as far as like so it, i mean it brings up a bunch of questions i immediately it's uh nba playoff season so i, I go to like how does this affect sports athletics and that sort of thing and i wonder if there's going to become you know rules about this sort of thing and then i started thinking well no way because there's no way the leg is as strong as it was before if it's been lengthened right i don't know sometimes if you talk to some people they'll tell you that a bone actually is stronger in the place that it has healed from a break i don't know if that's actually true if that's an old wives tale but yeah I don't know. If we have any orthopedic surgeons listening, yeah. uh, shoot us an email. I'm, I'm really interested <laughs> <laughs> about this. Um, it also seems fitting, though, because uh, you and I are both about the same height. We're like 5'10", probably. Yeah. You, you, you may have, have may have me a quarter inch, inch or something. Yeah. yeah. But Josh is, what, 6'3", maybe? Yeah, 6'4", or maybe, yeah. maybe a little touch higher. So it does feel fitting that we're having this co- conversation without him. Without him. Yeah, because yes. he would just be making fun of us the whole he time. He would, for sure. <laughs> and then if we could get get Ken in the room and ask him how yeah. he feels about this, that would be even better because he's like five, six. I yeah. Know. He's pretty small. It is funny because when I joined the team, there was no one on the team taller than you. That's right. And that was intentional. For 10 years, I had nobody <laughs> on the team taller than me. 
And that's not very tall. No. So. And then we hired Austin <laughs> shortly after I, I joined, and he's a little yeah. taller than yeah. he's, he's actually surprisingly tall um, when you stand up next to him. Yeah. Uh, and now we've got a few. Yeah. So. Now there's a bunch. Yeah. yeah now I'm the. <laughs> And I'm getting shorter because I'm old. Oh, that's funny. But uh, if this was a thing, I can imagine in a world where you're a single dude and like, again, all of the people lie anyway. Like they get, if you're on any of these dating apps, you hear people all the time lying about their height. You hit, you have guys wearing lifts in their shoes to gain height. So when they go on a date or whatever, they look taller. I mean, it's, yeah. It's a thing. And so I, I can imagine being a young dude trying to figure out how am I going to get the woman that I want, and I'm 5'7". What's that going to look like? The reality is for this surgery, though, is you – insurance doesn't cover it because sure. it's not a health issue, and it's about $100,000 to get this done. So I would think that – you just write a check to whoever it is you want to date and say, I've got a hundred thousand dollars. I'm not, I'll give you the hundred thousand dollars and I'll keep my legs. But would that be sufficient or no, I got to have the statue. Like let them choose. Yeah. Huh. I wouldn't have thought of that. So one thing I did just think of, though, I was watching, a, I saw a clip from a video the other day. One of these guys that's a political talking head goes camp, college campus to college campus and, yep. and uh, you know, does these seminars and answers questions and that sort of thing. And he's like not a particularly large guy. Yeah. And this, uh, you know, someone from the other side of the aisle got up, asked a question just to kind of get at him. And the question was something along the lines of like, hey, why, why did, do you always say that you're 5'9 when there's no way you're more than 5'5? Five, five? Yeah. That was the question. Uh -huh. So the guy on stage says, well, how tall are you? And he goes, I'm 5'9. And he goes, well, come, come up on stage. Yeah. And it's funny because he would look at this guy on stage and say, oh, yeah, there's no way he's 9'9. Nine, nine. This guy gets up there and he's the exact same height. Yeah, exactly. It, so it was super funny just to watch. There is this whole thing about height and it's socially acceptable if you're like 5'9 and up probably. But as soon as you feel like you're shorter than that, it's this this whole thing if you're uh, if you're a man today. Well, so. it's fun. I, I will... I have the little bit of the short man complex because I don't know what it is. Everybody thinks I'm shorter than I am. We had this conversation with Josh. Like I asked for whatever reason, it was like a couple of weeks ago, like Josh, who's taller me. And then I named like three guys on our staff and I was one of them. Yeah. Yeah. And he was like, Oh, for sure. They're all taller than you. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, every one of them stand up. Yeah. And it wasn't, I was taller than most of them. You and I are about the same. So yeah. anyway, it's funny. And then, PV makes it worse though. Cause when I go out to Prescott Valley and I walk up and people have only ever seen me on the screen and then yeah. I show up in real life, I'm, I look really short <laughs> because I, I, yeah, I'm a lot taller on the screen, but for sure, for context, the screen in PV corner to corner is 16 feet. So when you take a, a close up shot of Jason and put it on a 16 foot screen, he's significantly larger I'm, than he yes, is in person. Out in PV, I'm much bigger. So that is really funny. So are you going to go get your legs lengthened so you can? Not uh, a chance. <laughs> I've never had an issue with height. My wife is the same height. We're, we're the exact, Courtney and I are the exact same height. Doesn't yeah. bother me. I've got yeah. no cares about it. Zero chance. I was never any good at basketball, anyways. So right. why would I even? Why does? It, why would I bother? Well, I'd like to hear from some people on our podcast audience if you're ready to go get your legs <laughs> lengthened. That would be great. Uh, all right. Well, let's dive into this past Sunday. Uh, we were in week 35. Um, does that put us at 10 more weeks of this series? I believe it does. 
I think it's 44 or 45 total. Maybe eight. Okay. I feel like there's eight. I feel you like might, there's eight left. You might be right. It's the home stretch is yes. what I said yesterday. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, we were in Romans 12, uh, chapter, or sorry, sorry, chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. We really only got through 9 through 17. So I did want to spend probably the first part of our time together uh, on the podcast, at least hitting those last four or so verses, 17 through 21, uh, because they're really good. And it's a little bit repetitive in that mm-hmm. section, but I would love to give you a chance just to uh, tell us what you would have told us on Sunday had <laughs> you had an extra eight minutes. I don't know if we could do it in eight, but we'll try. <laughs> we'll do our best. Yeah, thanks. This is one of the joys about the podcast. We knew this going in to this series is there were going to be some weeks that there's just so much meat on this bone that we can't get it into a 30-minute sermon. So um, the back half of this, of chapter 12, as we kind of round the corner here and get into chapter 12, verse 17, there's almost a shift. So if you would have noticed as we preached through the first, through 9 through 16, we kept talking about how we treat one another. Like he says, be devoted to one another, live in harmony with one another. And so you have all of these statements mourn with those who mourn, uh, take care of the family of God. So it's really uh, a section talked about how we in the church should be behaving and loving and serving one another. As we shift to to uh, verse 17, it goes from kind of the how we live with one another and then how do we treat those who are on the outside. Okay, so the The primary focus of that first section is about our brothers. The primary focus of 17 through 21 is about our enemies. So how do we interact and respond to those who are outside of the family of faith? So he he begins like this. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. So he actually begins with four prohibitions. So do not repay evil for evil. Uh, Do not take revenge. That's verse 19. Um, We actually back up. If you go to verse 14, he actually says, do not curse other people. And then in verse 21, he says, do not overcome be overcome by evil. So there's these prohibitions, but for each of these prohibitions, there's also a, 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 a second piece of it that says what to do. He's, he doesn't just tell us what not to do. He tells us what to do. In verse 14, he says, bless those who persecute you. In verse 17, he says, do what is right in the eyes of everyone. Verse 18, live at peace. Uh, Verse 20, do good to your enemy. And verse 21 is overcome evil with good. So there's a lot of things we're not supposed to do and a lot of things that we're supposed to do. So again, these imperatives that we've talked about. But at the end of the day, here's here's the overarching idea. He's saying the same thing over and over again. And what he's saying is that we as followers of Jesus are forbidden to take revenge. Now, again, I think most of us would say we don't have quote-unquote enemies. Every time I hear that, I think 
I think of a superhero. Superheroes have enemies, right? There are villains in superhero movies. Most of us are not. We don't have enemies. But we do have people who hurt us. And the command from this text is that we are not to take revenge. Like, that's forbidden for us. Um, And we got to remember, again, keep the context of who... Paul is writing to here. These people understand what it means to have been persecuted. We're going to really see it uh, in the next 15 years in the Roman church when Nero comes to power and persecution is, is outright and awful and people are getting crucified and thrown into the fire and killed in the Colosseum. Like it's going to get really bad, but it's, but they've already experienced it. One of the main parts of the Roman church that's already occurred is that all Jewish people in 49 AD were kicked out of Rome by Claudius. So if you were a Christian and you had Jewish heritage, which many of this church started that way, you got ejected from the city for five years. So just imagine if somebody came into Prescott and said, hey, everybody of Irish descent, you have to leave the city. Like, you can't live here anymore, or we're going to put you in prison or put you to death. That's what happened to the Jewish Christians in Rome. So that started a lot of this Jewish-Gentile dissension in the church, because for five years, all of the Jewish Christians were ejected from the city, and they didn't get to come back until Claudius... uh, had died. And so they understand what persecution looks like. And so, but Paul's word to them, even in the midst of that terrible persecution is you don't get to take revenge. So let's, that's the overarching idea. Let me share just a couple of real quick thoughts. It says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. And that word everyone means everyone. Like we are to be a people as followers of Jesus who do what is right, not just in the eyes of our family, not even in just in the eyes of our church. We're actually to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. Like the, the world should look at us and see us doing what's right. Verse 18 says, if it is possible, as far as it depends upon you, live at peace with everyone. I love the honesty of this verse where Paul says, If it is possible, that's caveat number one, as far as it depends upon you, that's caveat number two. He doesn't just say, live at peace with everyone, because you can't. We can't live at peace with everyone, because there are a lot of people who believe things and do things and act in ways that we can't be at peace with. And where where it is that we have harmed people, we can go and we can ask forgiveness and we can seek uh, reconciliation. But we can't create that without them choosing to also be reconciled to us. So he says, if it is possible, as far as it depends upon you, live at peace with all people. So if I were going to put an application to this part, to verse 18, I would ask you today, who in your life do you need to be reconciled with? Like, is there anybody in your life where there has been sin one way or another, there's been discord one way or another, could have been their fault, could have been your fault, but either way, there's a broken relationship in your life. And the question would be, have you done everything you can to bring about reconciliation? 
to bring about peace in that relationship. You can't make it happen, but you can do everything that you can do. Yeah, that's that's really good. And this is something that we can see in other letters from the Apostle Paul was really important to him. Yeah. I look at uh, in 1 Timothy 3 when this actually becomes a qualification for eldership. I always think back to that mm. and like, oh man, this is like at the very highest level of church leadership in Paul's eyes. Like he made it so important. It was so important to him that he put it on that list. Yeah. Right. So um, that that part has always stuck out to me. And it's like, okay, so w- what do I need to do? How can I constantly be looking inwardly at my life and making sure that uh, the way he puts it in, in First Timothy is uh, you must also have good, uh, good reputation with outsiders. So like even people that you're not very well acquainted with, especially yeah. people you're not very well connected with, you should still be in good reputation with those people as well. Yeah, the, it, the way that we live our life and the way that people see us matters. Mm-hmm. And so we don't get to, to just go take, uh, uh, just to be kind to our people. We have to, to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. Verse 19, this, this, the rest of this section really comes down to this. Do not take revenge. Like that's the overarching idea here. You and I do not get to take revenge when people hurt us. And... Paul throws in this, my dear friends, or some of your Bibles may say, my beloved, like he's trying, it's an endearing phrase. He's looking at people who have been hurt and he says, I love you. I love you. My beloved, my dear friends, you, you can't, you can't go take revenge when people hurt you. And then he adds this, but leave room for God's wrath. And I was thinking about this this morning. Why is it that we feel compelled to take revenge? When somebody hurts us or does something evil against us, what compels us to take revenge? Because there's something in us, I think, if we're honest, there's something in us that thinks they're going to get away with it, and they've got to pay for what they've done. And when we do that, what we're actually doing is discounting the fact that, that, that God's wrath is real. So do we believe that God's wrath is real? Do we believe that God is just? If I believe that, if I believe he's real and I believe he's just, if I believe his wrath is a part of his character, then it's a lot easier for me to step back and say, then I don't have to take care of this. I will trust that God will take care of this. <clears throat> so that's the big, the big takeaway for this. And, and I, again, I look at this phrase where it says, but leave room for God's wrath. And I wrote in my Bible, do I want them to experience my wrath or God's wrath? Because that's what seems to be at stake here. Like if I go in and I avenge my wrong, if I go take revenge, then there'll be no room for the wrath of God. So would I rather them experience whatever wrath I can put on them, or would I rather them experience the wrath of God? That I would trust that God is going to be just to punish the evildoer who has done evil to me. And in this way, we actually get to mimic our Savior Jesus. 1 Peter chapter 2 reminds us of this. This is 1 Peter 2, 23. Talks about when Jesus was on the cross. Here's what it says. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. In other words, he didn't take revenge. When he suffered, 
he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. So Jesus did not fight back. He didn't take revenge. He didn't retaliate. He didn't threaten. He didn't yell. Instead, he left all of that to his father, who he, whom he knows is going to judge justly. So he didn't feel the need to, to revenge himself because he knew his father would do it on his behalf. And that's the heart that we have to take when we think about the people who hurt us, that it's our responsibility to leave room for the God's wrath. If they deserve to be punished, they will be punished. He continues, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. So again, the question would be, do you believe that? Do you believe that vengeance belongs to the Lord? And do you believe that he will repay the wrong that has been done to you? If you have this burning thing in you that says, no, I have to do it. I have to take care. I've got to avenge my name. I've got to fight back. I've got to retaliate. Then what you're saying at the end of the day is you don't actually believe God when he says, I will repay. I mean, that's what he says. And when you choose to repay, you're actually removing room for the wrath of God. And that whole idea is a pretty counter-cultural narrative for sure. A hundred percent. I mean, how many times have you watched the crime TV show where the something happens to a guy's family or wife or kids and he goes and takes his own, takes it into his own hands is what he'll say. Well, yeah. you're not going to do it. So I'm going to go do it, yeah. do it myself. And it's like, yeah, that feels good. Yeah. I'm sure like at, in, at some level, it feels good to be a part of the justice in which you, you uh, think you deserve or think should, should be taking place. But again, I just see this as a piece of, especially for those again, I, I'm, I would, um, I'm like, I consider myself ignorant to religious persecution, right? I do, I've not experienced it. Right. We, we in the American church, like you pointed out yesterday, I don't know that we've really ever experienced many of us religious persecution on the yeah, level very that, that's understandable. Very small pockets super, in the American church. Super small pockets. Um, but, you know, I could, I just see this as a part of dying to yourself, like dying surrendering this piece of yourself, what you want, what, what feels good in that moment, just surrendering that to the Lord, not only because it's what he asks us to do, but also because man, God's justice is better than mine anyways. Right. And that's the whole thing that I think Paul's trying to communicate is like, who are you to think that you have a right view of justice mm-hmm. to begin with? Yeah. I, we just don't. Yep. Um, so yeah, it is a very countercultural. Uh, yeah. Which notion. is, is fitting, right? Because yeah. how did this whole section begin? The whole point back into chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, yeah. but be transformed. This is one more way he's trying to help the Roman Christians and us to no longer be conformed to the pattern of this world. The pattern of this world is you go get yours. You get revenge. You retaliate. You make sure that they pay for what they've done. That is the world's... Uh, mindset. And he's saying, no, 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 we serve a God who is just. And so we put it into his hand, just like our Savior did. Now, this doesn't mean that that um, the wrath of God shouldn't come. 
And I want to make sure that we say that. We're not yeah. saying it doesn't come. In fact, when we jump into chapter 13, he's going to talk specifically about the governmental authorities who are servants for our good. Uh, and he says in verse 4, for the one is the authority of God. I'm sorry. For the one in authority is God's servant. So this is our governmental authorities for your good. But if if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to punish, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Like, we leave it into the wrath of God, and part of the wrath of God is the governmental authorities of our day. If somebody comes and breaks into my house and beats my child, they part of their experiencing the wrath of God is they go to prison. So I don't go take revenge. I let... I let the government that God's put in place to do that vengeance. And if they don't do it correctly, it still doesn't fall back on me. It still falls back on God. And so God's wrath is not just in the afterlife. It is also in the here and now through the governmental authorities that he has put in place. So they are God's servants, agents of his wrath. His wrath is real and they should pay for their sin both now and later but, but it's not up to me. It's up to God. So here's what's up to me. Look at verse 20. On the contrary. So instead of me going out and trying to get revenge and take, take my wrath out on people, here's what we are commanded to do. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. My responsibility is not to pour out wrath on people, even people who deserve it. My responsibility is to love people, to actually meet their needs. And this is hard. And again, there have been amazing moments where we've gotten to see this in real life, and it is always so shocking when you see the loved one of a person who's been killed in the and a young, I remember a young man a few years ago whose uh, whose brother had been shot in Dallas by a police officer who went into the wrong apartment and they killed his brother. And he sits there on the the brother sits there on the witness stand and points to the cop and says, "I forgive you." And actually, I don't want her to go to prison. Like it was, you see this amazing picture of of love and grace and compassion. Um, and that's what he's calling us to do. That's what the the Christian response has always been all the way back to the very time of Jesus. Jesus did this over and over and over. In the midst of hurt and pain, he loved people. And, and that's our response. So this is what it looks like for us, not just inside the church, but outside. How do we love people even those who are against us yeah that's really good i i um like to paint a picture of when jesus is downloading the gospel to paul personally over the course of those few years and like the he gets to the point of the sermon on the mount and paul must be like oh i gotta hold on i gotta write that down like yeah. i'm gonna need this later yeah because uh, we see it come up over yep. and over again this is just one of those places yep um well, we do have, so now that we're kind of wrapping up, we got through the rest of the text here. We do have a couple of questions um, that came 
uh, came through. I'm going to mix up the order that I told you earlier. So I'm going to okay. go in backwards order. Let's do this first. Um, since we just talked about, you know, there's this, this command, right? Love what is good, hate what is evil. Um, I guess the question, the question that was posed on Sunday is if we're supposed to hate what is evil, then first you mentioned, we don't get to decide, like, we're not the ones that decide what is evil. Thank God. Cause mm-hmm. we would get that wrong over and over again. So how do we know what's evil in, in God's eyes and how do we actively fight against it? What does that look like? Yeah. So this is the answer to that is it's in God's word and it's all over his word. I mean, we can, the way that we know what's evil is we know the heart and the character of God through his word. So let me just give you two examples that, that help us to understand. I love Proverbs 6, um, verse 16 says, There are six things the Lord hates and seven that are detestable to him. Like he, excuse me, he flat out tells us what he hates. Here's things that are evil. These are the things that are detestable. Haughty eyes. What is that? It's pride. That's where he begins. That if there's an arrogance, a haughtiness to you, God hates that. A lying tongue. God hates it. And we should understand that. I mean, Jesus called and uh, called himself the truth. I am the way and the truth. And anybody who bears his name and is a liar, man, of course God's going to hate that. Uh, hands that shed innocent blood. So people who take other people's life. A heart that devises wicked schemes. So someone who is manipulative, uh, coercive. Um, God hates that. Feet that are quick to rush into evil. And again, so think about all of the things we get excited to go do that go against the word of God. He says feet that that are that are quick to rush into evil. God hates that. Um, a false witness who pours out lies. So twice in this text, verse 17 and 19 of Proverbs 6, twice he lists lying. Like, I, he hates it. Like, it's so detestable to him. And then the last one he tells us in this section is the person who stirs up conflict in a community. God hates it. When we are uh, creating dissension in the community, specifically the community of believers, like that that fight against unity, God, it just boils his blood. He hates it. It's evil. So we find these kinds of things all over scripture. Uh, let me give you one more. Let me give you one more text to just whet your appetite here. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul is writing to Timothy, and he says, flee the evil desires of youth. Now, as you go through and read what he has told Timothy, both in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, I mean, he's talking about sexual sin primarily in this moment. And it's like, you have to flee from sexual immorality, flee from the sexual desires of youth. So he tells us what is evil. Flee the evil desires of you. There are desires when we're young that are evil, and God calls them evil, and we are to flee from them. So we find this stuff all the time throughout the scripture. And to help us understand what's evil, he actually gives us in this text what is good. 
So flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Do not have anything to do with foolish and uh, stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. So there are a list again of things that he considers evil, that things that we should be fleeing from in contrast to the list that he gives us here of things that we should be pursuing. So the answer is the Bible is what helps us to understand what is good and what is evil. And it's all over scripture that help us to understand the thing God desires from us and the things God uh, does not want from us. So that's really good. There was a kind of a second part to this question, not when it was asked to me, but I got I got this uh, had this conversation maybe two or three times yesterday, and it, it's funny because it was a conversation you, Josh, and I had when we were sermon planning hmm. for this text, and, and it's this idea of okay, how, I'm I'm called to hate what is evil. But how do I still love people that are doing evil? Like, yeah. what does that piece look like? Because I don't, I don't think what Paul's saying is like, write the angry post on Facebook about the person that did the bad thing. Right. What he's saying is hate the sin against God. Yep. Like hate that, hate that thing. But how do we kind of reconcile that with still loving and wanting what's best for that person, which is a life surrendered to Jesus? Yeah. Well, it's so good because this Second Timothy text actually addresses that. So, again, we're in Second Timothy chapter 2, starting at verse 22, where he says, Look, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the name of the Lord. I'm sorry. Yeah, who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone. So here's where it starts. This is where it flips. So when you bump up against that person who is doing the evil, it says we must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Opponents, this is verse 25, opponents, those enemies, those on the other side of the line, other side of the aisle, other side of the spectrum, opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading to leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and, es- and escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. So we have to have a mindset when a mindset shift when it comes to people who are doing the evil, who are the opponents not just of us because of our personal opinions, but opponents of the word of God and the, the ways of Christ. When there are opponents, here's our command. We are, to, we are to gently instruct them. We are to try our best with humility to be kind and gently instruct them, to help them. And look at what it says. And pray, like goodness sakes, pray that God will grant them a knowledge I'm sorry, God will grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. That that our goal in those moments is that they would come to a place of repentance, that God would grant them repentance leading them to a knowledge of the truth. 
They will come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil. When we see people who are living in opposition to the word of God, who are practicing the evil that God tells us to flee from, what we're seeing in that moment is actually a person who has been taken captive by the enemy. They are hostages to the to to God. They are hostages that have been taken by our enemy. They what they don't need is somebody beating them down. What they need is somebody helping them escape. And so they escape through the knowledge of the truth. And so when we look at people who are on the other side of whatever issue that we're thinking about, if they're opposing the word of God, it's because they've been taken captive by the enemy to do his will. Uh, Ephesians 6 makes it really clear. People are never our enemy. People are never our enemy. Our enemy, we fight not against flesh and blood. Like it is not against people. If they, if you're dealing with someone who has flesh and blood, they're not your enemy ever. They are somebody who's been taken captive by our enemy. Our fight is against the principalities and the dark forces in the spiritual realm. That's who our enemy is. And so everyone who is flesh and blood, who's living out the desires of those dark uh, forces in the heavenly realms, those are just people who have been taken captive by our enemies. They should be people that we're fighting to release, um, that we are working to help uh, come to a knowledge of the truth, praying that God would give them a heart of repentance. Yeah, that's that's really good. I just think about this idea of, you know, living countercultural and not being conformed to the ways of the world. And I look at one of the things that we talk a lot about and is kind of a talking point right now anyways, of just the polarization of people in general. Mm-hmm. And it's like, man, if the church could figure out a way, um, and maybe even making it more specific, if our church could yeah. figure out a way just to be a little bit less polarized by thinking about what you just said, essentially which is, man, it's, it's not the people. Like right. people do terrible things. Yes. People do very bad things. I'm, I'm not ignorant to yep. that. But it is the, the sin itself that we detest, and it is the people that we want to love and care for and pray for and walk with in repentance. Yeah. Um, and, and I think we, there could be something, and there is when we see that, um, in our church, something really powerful mm-hmm. uh, about walking through that process. Here's the next question. I think it's our last question. Uh, here's what it says. It says, you mentioned in your sermon that we should feel a level of conviction in our lives, but that shame should not be tolerated. Is there a way uh, to biblically manage shame as it ha- or uh, shame that has passed, just tolerable, and is all-consuming? Uh, this is so hard. And I know there are so many of us who struggle with this. Um, that we just feel defeated and deflated. And um, there are some of us who have a a more sensitive conscience than others. In fact, we'll get to that in the end of the book of Romans. And, and, and it can feel debilitating. Like we just feel shame all the time. And so uh, in, our, in the sermon, I said, what we have to remember as we get to this section, right? All of these commands we have to view in light of the mercy of Jesus. Like that's how he starts. In view of God's mercy, live this way. But we don't live this way to gain God's mercy. We live this way because we've received God's mercy. And I threw out, I said, look, 
Remember, Romans 8.1 came before Romans 12. And Romans 8.1 says, Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Like we got, I think the, the antidote to shame is just preaching that verse to ourselves over and over and over again until we actually begin to believe it. And it may, it may take us 40 years. Like, if I truly believe that in Christ there is no condemnation, that will bring about a freedom to our soul. Um, and so I can still be convicted. I can still be challenged. Jesus still wants to transform me, uh, into his likeness. All of that's true, but it does not come with condemnation. The condemnation is already gone because all of my sin was already placed on Jesus at the cross and he has paid the full penalty for all of those sins. There is no outstanding debt. There is no condemnation left. It has all been paid by Jesus. Now, how do I live in light of that? Well, I I grow in holiness. I grow in love and patience and kindness. All of the things that make me look more like Jesus, I grow in those. But again, it's not somehow to earn the love or grace or mercy of God. It's out of response to it. Let me give you one more text that I that I go to over and over and over again, specifically as it relates to shame. And so uh, it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Uh, this is one I bet I've taught, I don't know, dozens and dozens of times in my office when people are dealing with this issue. And it all comes down to... Um, to how do we know if what we're feeling is shame or are we feeling conviction? Because sometimes those can feel like the same thing. Is this godly? Is this something I, is this calling me to do something good? Or is this just outright evil condemnation on my soul? And so I always go to this verse. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 8, starting at verse 10. It says, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. In other words, there's two types of sorrow. There's two types of guilt or conviction, or we could use that word shame if you want. There's two types of sorrow that, that, that pushes, our, pushes down on our soul. One of them is a godly sorrow. It's when we are living in a way that does not align with what we say we believe. It's us living in a way that actually goes against what God is calling us to. That is a godly sorrow. It is from the Holy Spirit, and he's pressing in. Part of his job is to convict us of sin. So there's this godly sorrow. But what's the point of that godly sorrow? Well, it says that godly sorrow brings repentance. So the point of the godly sorrow, the Holy Spirit pointing out our sin in our life, reminding us of where we've fallen short or where we are falling short, he's pressing in on that to get us to a place of repentance, to whereby we acknowledge we were wrong and we turn from that sin and back to Jesus. And when that happens, it says, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. Like when the Holy Spirit is pressing in on those areas of our life where we have sinned, he's pushing down and he wants us to feel that conviction to get us to a place of repentance. And as soon as that place of repentance is established, the Holy Spirit lets off. 
He says, because that brought us to a place of salvation and then it leaves no regret. The Holy Spirit says, okay, moving on. Pick it up on your feet. Let's go. That's done. He's no longer going to press us in that area of sin once we have come to repentance. There's a second sorrow, though. And the second sorrow is a worldly sorrow. It is a sorrow that comes from our enemy. And that worldly sorrow brings death. So here's how we know if we're experiencing a godly sorrow, worldly sorrow. Have you repented? Like legitimately repented. Repentant means conviction, confession, and change. Have we felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit? Have we owned it and confessed to God and confessed to those we've sinned against? And then have we changed? Have we turned from that pattern of behavior and turned back to God? If that's the case, then the Holy Spirit is done. He's going to lift off that conviction and say, let's go move ahead. But if after we have repented, we are still feeling that weight and that guilt and that shame and that regret in that moment, we can know for sure that is not of God. That is a worldly sorrow and we have to reject it. We have to say to our enemy that sin has been forgiven. I am free of guilt. I am free of shame. I don't even have any regrets because worldly sorrow brings death, but godly sorrow leaves no regrets. I'm not, there is no guilt, no shame, no condemnation with true repentance. So as a follower of Jesus, we have to practice preaching to ourselves Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And once I have repented of my sin, the Holy Spirit says, come on, let's go. That's in the past. We're moving forward. Any residual regret, shame, guilt, or condemnation is of the enemy, and we have to do everything we can to reject it. That's really good. And I do think there's a piece of that to where um, part of that battle uh how do I articulate this? Part of that battle is <laughs> believing that Christ's forgiveness is enough for yes. what you've done. There is a big hundred percent. There is a big piece to surrendering to. Okay, <laughs> I am repentant. Uh, I was convicted. I did confess, and I am actively changing, and that is enough. Yeah. Christ's death, burial, and resurrection covers the sins That's that, right. that I've, uh, I've committed. So it's just, and you have to believe it. Yeah, yeah we got to preach the gospel to our own souls over and over yeah. again um, because the enemy is going to be preaching uh, condemnation 100%. over and over again. So we just have to keep coming back um, yeah. and resting in the good news of Jesus. That's really good. Well, that's all I've got. You have anything else you want to land the plane on? No. Looking forward to uh, chapter 13. We're going to talk about the polarization piece. We're going to be talking about how do we respond. This week it was about how do we respond to the people in the church. Last, or the, What I shared today was outside of the church. And the next one is how do we respond as followers of Jesus in light of the mercy and the gospel of Jesus? How do we handle government? So that's where we're going next. Looking forward to it. Yeah, baby. All right, thanks. See you guys again real soon. All right, well, that is a wrap on episode 36 of the Gospel for Everyone podcast. We're so grateful that you chose to spend some time with us today. 
As always, if you ever have any questions or comments from Sunday's message, we do encourage you to join us at quadcity.church Romans, where you can submit your question to be answered right here on the show. We do hope this conversation was helpful and fruitful in your walk with Jesus, and we can't wait to see you again real soon.